This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eilee and Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer-songwriter and freedom fighter Tom Morello with our signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Tom has a photo book out called Whatever It Takes that tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing, and I urge you to pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word, TomMorelloBook.com. We broadcast from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, unceded lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, and the Odawa, and a dozen more indigenous nations. We acknowledge them and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open as in the shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These complex questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is You Begin by Margaret Atwood. You begin this way. This is your hand, this is your eye, that is a fish, blue and flat, on the paper, almost the shape of an eye. That is your mouth, which is an O, or a moon, whichever you like. This is yellow. Outside the window is the rain, green because it is summer, and beyond that the trees and then the world, which is round and has only the colors of these nine crayons. This is the world, which is fuller and more difficult to learn than I have said. You are right to smudge it that way, with the red and then the orange. The world burns. Once you have learned these words, you will learn that there are more words than you can ever learn. The word hand floats above your hand like a small cloud over a lake. The word hand anchors your hand to this table. Your hand is a warm stone I hold between two words. This is your hand, these are my hands, this is the world, which is round but not flat, and has more colors than we can see. It begins, it has an end. This is what you will come back to. This is your hand. That was Margaret Atwood, You Begin. Our second regular feature is a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits, in response to this prompt. What was the first lesson you learned when you went to school? Or what was the most enduring lesson? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. 
and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm heading over to the University of Illinois at Chicago, where the state of Illinois is holding clemency and pardon hearings. A couple of former students and a good friend are appearing before the board, and I want to be there. We'll pick up the broadcast over there. Swear or affirm that the testimony provided at the hearing today will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Tell me that. All right, please be seated and state your names. Good morning. Jennifer Salvaugh, I'm the The hearing for Marshawn Allen is getting started. The room is crowded with supporters, as well as a lawyer from the state's attorney's office and the mother of the victim in the case. The case is called by the chairwoman, and then Marshawn's lawyer, Jennifer Sobel, starts it off. It's my great honor to represent Marshawn Allen in his request for a petition, uh, for a, in his unopposed request, I should say, for a pardon for his 1992 conviction. When Marshawn Allen was just 15 years old, his brother asked him to steal a van. What he did not know is that the next day, that van was used in a drug-related murder committed by two other people. Marshawn never hurt anyone, never knew that anyone would be hurt, and certainly did not know that anyone would be killed. Under the law at the time, Marshawn was not only automatically tried as an adult, but the law required that he receive the same sentence as the shooters, even though he never harmed anyone. Because two people were killed, Marshawn received a mandatory life without the possibility of parole. Despite being told that he would die in prison when he was just a teenager, Marshawn would never stop striving to better himself. While incarcerated, he became an adult. Mr. Allen earned his GED and became a paralegal. He took college classes at Danville Community College and Lakeland College, where he earned his associate's degree and made the president's list in 2008, 2009, and 2012. Mr. Allen held positions as a law clerk, inventory clerk, and teacher's aide. In 2006, he assisted the Illinois State Bar Association with a revision of post-trial remedies, a handbook for Illinois prisoners. Mr. Allen never stopped fighting for his freedom. In 2012, the Supreme Court abolished mandatory life sentences for juveniles in Miller v. Alabama for three main reasons, each of which perfectly described then 15-year-old Marshawn. Juveniles' lack of maturity leads to impulsive behavior. Juveniles are more vulnerable to negative influences and are unable to extricate themselves from crime-producing settings, and juveniles are more capable of change than adults. In 2016, thanks to the Miller decision, Mr. Allen was finally released after serving more than 24 years, or 9,008 days, in prison. It's my great pleasure to be here with Marshawn Allen. He is a first-year law student at Chicago Kent, also working for Represent Justice. We'll we'll talk about a little bit um, on the board of the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth and a member of the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network. I can, Marshawn. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I'm delighted. Uh, I, I guess we could start in a lot of different places. Uh, because we've known each other for a while. But let's start with law school. You just finished your first term, right, at Chicago Kent, your first worst semester, uh, yeah. Yeah. So how how was it? What'd you think? It was it was awesome. Um I actually took um criminal criminal law over the summer. 
Mm-hmm. And so it really uh, taking that one class over the summer, it only allowed me to uh, well, not allowed me, but it only only was required to take two classes over the fall, which was um, uh, legal writing and torques. And it was it was great. I really loved uh, the school, the classes. Um, it's not very I didn't find the work too difficult. I think the most difficult part that I'm finding is just finding the time because I'm working full time and right. trying to you know have a family and trying to do all and then still do some of my other advocacy work, volunteering with Restore Justice and some of the other organizations that I'm, I'm involved with. So trying to do all that stuff and still go to school. That's just been the most challenging part, just trying to find enough time in the day. I love it that you 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 kind of said nothing but positive things about law school. I, you're the first first year law student I've ever talked to who said how much they love law school. No, you're not really the first, but it's a grind that first year. I understand. It is, but it's not. I mean, I think to um, you know, I have a paralegal background. When right. I was in prison, I uh, was a, became a paralegal, worked in the law library as a law clerk. So a lot of the things that uh, we are learning now. I'm learning more, a lot more, but I at least have a foundation, had a foundation going into law school, which helped me out a lot, I think. Yeah, and you're 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 not only experienced, but you are older than the other students. So in a sense, you're probably a bit more focused and you have to be a bit more disciplined uh, just because of your work and your family and so on. Uh, yeah. I imagine. I remember when, when my youngest son went back to law school, he was only, I mean, he was younger than you. He was... I don't know, 26 or seven. He said, everybody in law school is a kid except me, you know? Well, I don't know if that's true at Chicago, Kent, but but probably you're among the older students. Yeah, uh, well, I'm in, I'll take an evening classes. So a, a few of us in the evening classes uh, are like older students. I work in, got families, stuff like that. So it's about 30 of us in the class. Oh, uh, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it is it is quite a few younger people too, uh, quite younger too as well. I'm not sure exactly of their age, but they're pretty young as well. I was reading a piece last night about the the uh, Austrian novelist Franz Kafka, and he was a lawyer. He studied law, uh, and he said, uh, "I I got a kick out of this because I knew I was going to be talking to you." He said um, he got a doctorate in law, and he characterized law as a kind of intellectual sawdust. The thousands of others miles have already chewed upon for me. So I thought that was kind of a harsh judgment, but but kind of humorous as well. A friend of mine said that uh, she she's trying to encourage me during the uh, exam process and told me that this is just a process to limit the amount of lawyers that that um, are yeah. out there. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a, a process of elimination and then. You'll you'll make it. I'm sure of it. But so we saw each other last week, and we saw each other at the Illinois. I believe it's called the Illinois Pardon Board or Parole Board. The Illinois Prison Review Board. Prison Review Board. And uh, you were presenting a case. Maybe we should go back a ways and explain how you got there on that day. I mean, you were 15 when you were sentenced to, to uh, life without possibility of parole, right? Yes. So let's go back to the beginning. Talk a little bit about last week and what we were what we were trying to get to. Yeah. So last week was a um, a hearing on a, a clemency petition that I filed for a. Well, actually, it's two parts to the petition that I filed. One was for a full pardon, which obviously would um, you know erase the entire offense that happened, um, the, and also a conviction. And the other part of it was actually a commutation where we're asking as an alternative to the pardon to um, convert my 
adult conviction to a juvenile adjudication, adjudication, which would essentially does the same thing, the, the, the same thing as the park would, uh, because, you know, once you be turned a certain age, your juvenile record is sealed and um, not available to the public. And the reason why I wanted to get that is because, you know, being in law school, I uh, wanted to practice law afterwards. And and it's still possible for me to become, uh, you know, be accepted by the bar. Uh, but it having this conviction off my record would greatly uh, influence that or make it a better process, make it better, better chance of it happening. And so and also I actually have a desire. Um, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to start it, probably somewhere locally, but I do want to run for office one day. Mm-hmm. And so there is a complete bar in the state of Illinois for running for local uh, elections. Unless you get a pardon. So that's one of the other reasons why I wanted to get it. Um, and I could talk about what led to there if you want me to as well. Well, I mean, I mean, the thing that I find most important or interesting is that you were sentenced to juvenile life without possibility of parole or what we used to say, sentenced as a child to die in prison. And yes. yet here you are with all you've accomplished in the last several years and you are no longer incarcerated. So Maybe talk a bit about how that came to be, because, I mean, many, many of us are celebrating that fact, but but most people don't know how that how that came about. Um, yeah. So uh, when I was incarcerated, I became a paralegal. I became uh, a law clerk um, and I wanted to do that for two reasons. One, my brother had died. He was paying for my legal uh, expenses. And when he died, I knew that my family could no longer pay for an attorney. And so I, uh, my mom, I remember having a conversation with my mom in 1997, shortly after my brother died, um, an attorney that he hired for me to do a post-conviction petition. Uh, he was not returning my calls. He wouldn't answer my letters. And when I finally got in contact with him, uh, the deadline for my post-conviction petition had passed. And he told me he didn't want to do it because it wasn't merit. And it was a whole ordeal. But my family was, my mom wanted to go to the family, try to get money, hire a lawyer. And um, I knew they couldn't afford it. So I told her, I said, hey, um, just give me the money to buy me a typewriter. And I told her, I said, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison, I want it to be my fault and not because of the indifference of an attorney who, you know, didn't really care about me or my situation. You know, you're just more about trying to get paid. And that's how I felt that some of my attorneys that I was represented by, that they did really didn't care, didn't put a lot of effort into trying to help me. And so my family did that. They got me a typewriter and I began my journey of trying to learn the law. Um, like I said, eventually I became a paralegal, got a parish certificate that I paid for through the mail. And, um, anyway, I started advocating for myself and I filed a several post conviction petitions. I think my case was reviewed over 16 times. And I think the first 13 times I was denied, mm-hmm. uh, denied, 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 um, over and over again. I just kept going back to the drawing board and finally a decision came out in our Illinois Supreme Court called People versus Leon Miller. Uh, that was uh, um, um, litigated by Randolph Stone from the University of Chicago at the time, his legal clinic. And it, basically the, the case was saying that it was unconstitutional sentence a juvenile to life without parole if he's convicted under theory of accountability like I was. And that opened the door for me to uh, challenge my sentence. And I filed another post successful post-conviction petition. The judge accepted it, um, appointed me a public defender to represent me. It took five years to get the judge to rule on that petition, uh, but eventually I uh, prevailed on it, went to uh, back to the Cook County to be resentenced. 
got resentenced to 55 years initially um, and then uh, reduced. That was reduced to 52 years. And because I, I it still required me to do another seven years, I believe seven, seven and a half years. And I wasn't satisfied with that. At that point, I had already served uh, probably more than 18 years in prison, close to 20 years in prison. I had served and I was like, I don't I, I just can't do another seven years. I don't want to do it. I don't feel it's necessary. And so I went back to prison, found out some errors that my judge had made, um, my judge and attorney made, actually. And filed my own pro se motion for reduction of sentence. The judge denied it, but then I appealed it and they appointed a lawyer for me on the appeal. And um, by this time, while the appeal was pending, Miller versus Alabama came out, the United States Supreme Court decision affecting juvenile, mandatory juvenile life without parole. And the attorney I was uh, representing on appeal, she argued the issue that I raised, namely that the judge had set the wrong sentencing range in my resentencing hearing. It should have been 20 to 60. And he had argued that, well, the state attorney argued that the judge should impose a life sentence again. And the judge had set my sentencing range at 20 to life again. And when I was trying to tell my lawyer that it shouldn't be 20 to life, it should be 20 to 60, he argued with me, argued with me that, yes, I can get natural life again. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't. Um, but anywho, uh, the appellate court ended up agreeing that I wasn't eligible for a life sentence again. It should have been 20 to 60. They uh, sent my case back for a new sentencing hearing before a different judge. And this time when I went back to get resentenced, I was sentenced to time served and immediately released from prison. And wow. so that's how that's in a nutshell how I got here, got out and um, at least now had opportunity to go to law school. Wow. I mean, now I, I, listening to you, I can see why you're going to be a lawyer and why you're going to be a great lawyer, because you, you, you're tenacious, uh, you're brilliant, and uh, you know what you believe in, and you, you're going to pursue it. You know Randolph Stone now, right? I mean, you become... I do. Yeah, he's a dear friend. He lives around the corner here, and uh, he, he's made a real mark. But this getting rid of juvenile life without possibility of parole was a major, major victory. But, you, you know, as you got to the end of that part of your story, you said, and then you got immediately released. What was that like emotionally, that homecoming? It was, it, that was great as well. Um, it didn't seem like it was real, uh, even when, because I got resentenced on a Friday and because of the way that the county jail, I had to go back to IDOC and I had to stay with a weekend. And I suppose I got out that Monday, but um, they had, it was some snafu with my paperwork. So they kept me until Tuesday. And so I'm going through this whole roller coaster of having to stay the weekend, hoping nothing happened to me while I'm in the county jail. You know, it's a very dangerous place um, and just wanted to be home. And um, I remember getting out um, They because I was in the NRC and they took me from a van to take me around the front of Stateville. And I remember getting out of the van and my family was standing there. Well, and able to, uh, it was cold that night too. I remember that, but I remember like my family screaming and when they heard me get out, I mean, when they saw me get off the van and being able to hug my mom for the first time in almost 25 years as a free, free person and my great aunts and my nieces and, you know, a host of cousins who I hadn't even met before. It was just, it was great. Um, and you know, just to be out of that place and, and to think that like Savior, I had spent more than 10 years there alone throughout my incarceration. And I was just ready to get out of there. I was ready to get out before they changed their mind and tried to pull me back in, say it was something else going on with the paperwork where they made a mistake or uh, anything. But I, I was just really ecstatic to be home and glad to be able to. Uh, I felt vindicated, too. I felt vindicated because I didn't believe I deserved to be there. 
especially for the, the, the amount of time that they send us me for. And to finally be home and free of my family was just just awesome. And 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 I know your mom, but were they crying when you got off the van? They were. They were crying. I have a video of it too. I still have. It. It's dark. You can't really see much. But someone recorded on their phone, and I ended up getting a copy of it. But it was yeah. They were crying. How about you? Were you crying? Um, I, not at that point. Um, I don't think I cried at that point. I think later on, once it really started seeping in, uh, I, I, I shed a lot of tears probably that first few weeks. Um, I remember driving on the expressway and just thinking like, I can just keep driving if I wanted to, you know, there's no walls, there are no bars, there's no guards, nothing to keep me from going. And it just, it made me tear up thinking like I was just in prison with life without parole. And, you know, if it was up to the state of Illinois, I would have died that they wanted me to die there. Yeah. And here I am out free driving on the expressway, you know, and I still have the moments now, even about being in law school or being being here at home. Some moments I just think about it like, wow, you know, just a few years ago I was in prison. Yeah. And 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 the restrictions and the humiliations and the kind of constant oversight. Oh, it's just maddening. I mean, but it's a it's a great, great thing to describe that moment of homecoming. And, you know, I. Bernie and I were at your wedding, and uh, maybe maybe you would describe a little bit about how that happened. Number one, and where we were, and what the what the judge who married you had to say. Yeah, uh, so uh, Tammy and I were initially thinking about getting married in Vegas. My brother had invited us to come to Vegas for Fourth of July, and we were going to just go and run off and just get married while we were there. I didn't even tell anybody. Probably my mom, because she would have killed me if I would have not told her. But uh, we, I saw uh, Justice Neville, who's the Supreme Court Justice now, and um, I'll tell the story about how I met him, but I saw him one day, and we told him we were getting married, and he's like, hey, you know, I can marry you guys here. And we're like, hmm, that's a good idea. And, and once we thought about it, thought about the connection to my story, he's like, that's really a good idea. But Justice Neville was actually the judge uh, who ruled on my case in the appellate court the second time my case was after I got resentenced the first time and I appealed the sentence. Um, he was on the he was on he was the, the author of the opinion that allowed me to get resentenced the second time. Mm-hmm. The judge who said that I was shouldn't have been sentenced to life without I mean the sentence range shouldn't have been between the life, it should have been between the sixty, and who also appointed a new judge to represent me. And um, I met Justice Neville when I came home. I had got a war from the Illinois Judges Association and he was there mm. and we didn't know each other. I didn't realize it was him. He didn't know it was me. We just he introduced himself. I think oh, maybe one of the appellate court judges that I'm uh, Justice Mick, Mick uh, uh, Burke had introduced me to him. And uh, we started a conversation and he invited me down to his um, to his chambers, to the Supreme Court, told me to come down after I got the award. And on my way home, I kept thinking, like, his name sounds familiar. I couldn't remember why it kept, you know, it was just in my head, the whole ceremony. I kept thinking about it. And when I came home that night, I pulled out my laptop and I went to look up my appellate court opinion. And lo and behold, it was he was the judge who had actually authored that opinion. And I remember starting to cry like this is crazy. Like, you know, just thinking I was in prison and now I'm out getting a award from a judge association, meeting the judge who actually offered the opinion, who got me out. And anywho, that was why when I uh, told him when we told him we were getting married, he was like, he can do it at the court. Mm-hmm. And we thought that would be a great idea. So um, we arranged to happen at the court. It was happening in the courtroom. We ended up doing it in the law library. But yeah, uh, Justin Neville had been a um, 
a really good, he wanted to be a, been a mentor to me when I came home and uh, we still communicate every now and then. We don't communicate as much, but um, yeah, that's the connection. Well, you know, I, I it was a very emotional uh, wedding. I've been to a lot of weddings, but that was a very emotional one. And Justin Deville got very emotional because he found it somehow both poetic and ironic that somebody that he had seen from the bench as a defendant was now before him as a as a free person who was uh, freely choosing to to marry his love. And it was a lovely moment. And he got very emotional. He did. He really and did. My mother, who I see all the time. She got very emotional. Everybody was everybody was emotional. It was great, but you know, I'm, I'm as I'm listening to you, uh, Marshawn. I'm I'm seeing a lot of reasons why I can see your ambition now to be a lawyer, uh, your ambition even to run for office um, someday. But but if you could put it in, in just a few words, what intervention do you hope to make by being a lawyer or being? Uh, an elected official. What is your? What are you bringing uniquely um, to the law? Well, first, the practice that I I, I right now anticipate on you know, getting getting involved with is probably civil rights law, and I I, I chose that because I I want to make an impact, uh, a bigger impact. I thought about criminal defense, and I may do some of that too, but not too keen on that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to make an impact. And I thought that civil rights with being able to like help change sue to change policies that affect like black community or other communities or some of the uh, law enforcement agencies, the Department of Corrections. Uh, but I wanted to my experience when I was incarcerated, one of the things I thought that like the state of Illinois just dealt too harshly with me and, and not even with just me, but with a lot of my peers that were there. I didn't think that the state had to charge me as an adult for the crime that I was uh, accused of. I don't think that the judge, I mean, that the, they had to um, uh, charge me with murder, first of all. They didn't have to do that. Um, there were a whole host of other things that they could have chose to do. They chose to do it that way. And then even the sentence to life without possibly a parole, that was another thing that I felt that they just didn't have to do, and they did. And so my goal when I was incarcerated, I wanted to come home and I wanted to have an impact on those policies that uh, led to me being in incarceration and a lot of my, my peers. And I just wanted to change it. And I thought that like telling my stories, my story would help to have an influence on them. And one of the things I didn't mention was that when I was incarcerated, I was told like several times my wardens, correctional officers, even uh, fellow prisoners who was there that I didn't belong there. I didn't fit there. It was one day I was sitting in my cell cleaning up, arranging my property in my little property box. And uh, also I had never had a conversation with walk past my cell. And he told me that uh, he, he walked past and he stopped and backed up and he said, you know what? I've been working here for a long time and I've been watching you and you don't fit in here. And I remember when he walked away from my cell, I started cleaning, uh, doing what I was doing. And then I had to stop and I just tears started coming out of my eye. I'm like, why do people keep telling me this? Mm. You know, they keep telling me this. And I believe that obviously, you know, I thought my pain was biased, but I believe that I didn't belong there. But the idea that an officer would tell me that and a couple of years later, a warden would tell me that out of his mouth, that he looked at my file and looked at my case and didn't think I deserved to be there. So that, you know, I just wanted to come home and I wanted to try to make an impact thinking if I tell my story, and they can get an idea of the people that they are putting behind bars for, you know, long periods of time, that it will have an impact on the policies that are being made and have the legislators, 
or even some of the courts even rethink some of the decisions that they're making. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to do and become an attorney because of my experience with attorneys. Uh, initially, it was just a personal fulfillment. I just wanted to do it. When I started learning the law and I realized that I understood it, was able to apply it. I was like, I want to be a lawyer now. I want to do this. And especially when I started working on a law library, helping other people, I found that to be very rewarding. And I knew that a lot of people need help. Um, you know, they can't afford attorney uh, or they if they get appointed attorney, sometimes those attorneys not working in their best interest. And I just thought that because of my experience and uh, the things that I had been through, that I would be able to help people and I'd be able to use that experience, the things that I went through with my attorneys. Mm-hmm. To help inform the way that I treat my clients and the way I've showed up for them in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed the other day when you presented your petition to the Illinois Board. I was also impressed with your attorney, um, Jennifer Sobel. Um, maybe say a word about that mo- that day. I mean, it was quite an emotional, another emotional day. Every time I'm with you, there's high emotion. But, but it was there were a lot of people appearing. You were one. But you had a, a room full of supporters, and even even the district attorney, I mean, spoke more or less on your behalf, right? I mean, everybody wanted you to to get this ruling. Uh, everybody who spoke until the end, but but there were so many other cases where which were much more fraught, much more difficult. But maybe talk a little bit about that day and how you presented yourself and and how how Jenny, what what you felt of Jenny's presentation. Yeah, I thought Jenny did a, a great job. Um, I, I have nothing to complain about what she presented. I thought she presented everything uh, um, in, a, in a very effective manner. Um, we initially were trying to get some of the legislators I had worked with to come and uh, speak on my behalf. Um, we just thought that would have been important. Unfortunately, they were all in Springfield. And uh, we couldn't get them to come because they were being sworn in. I think the governor's inauguration was the day before. So everyone was in Springfield. But one of the things that we had made, Jenny and I had made a list of people who we thought would be best for this. And our first list was legislative, but we also wanted someone in government to speak on my behalf. And uh, Sharon Mitchell was an obvious choice. Uh, I had worked with Sharon when he was before he became a public, well, not before, before he became a head of the public defender, I should say. Uh, when he worked for the Illinois Justice Project and um, even Michelle, um, I had met her, as she said, we had went to Germany together um, in 2019, I believe it was, maybe 18, yeah, 19, we went to Germany together and got to know each other. And um, so she, and, and we had worked on some advocacy work and was familiar with each other's work and stuff. So having those two come testify and Michelle worked for the state's attorney's office and she was there in her personal capacity, but still being able to speak up on my behalf. And even the state's attorney's office, um, I had initially thought that they were unopposed to the petition as a whole, but it seemed like they said they were uh, they were uh, not a, they were not opposing the uh, the juvenile the adjudication portion of it, uh, which was still awesome uh, that they did do that and didn't oppose the petition. Um, but the people showing up for me, it again, I was moved by that as well. I had sent out emails, of course, to you and Bernadine, and asking you all if you all could attend. And a lot of people were able to come. Some people weren't. Um, and then it was people that were there for other hearings who came over when they found out I was getting my uh, having a hearing on my own. They came over to support me as well. So a lot of those people came from there. Uh, but it was very emotional. It was very this was this was like my first event really since I've been back home. You know, we moved to D.C. and we came back last year in February. 
And some of these people I hadn't seen since I left. So it was like a big family reunion in some ways, too. So it was emotional in those ways, too, seeing faces I hadn't seen, like Alex Kim um, and some of the other people that were there, so many people that were there. But I thought that uh, the hearing went well. I think the only um, thing that I think was a hiccup that was unexpected but not totally surprising was the victim mom opposing it, uh, which is totally understandable. Yeah, I mean, that's some of the hearings you have, you know, very, very contested kind of thing. Ears was not contested, but the one of the victim's moms did speak. And I went up to her afterwards and said I was very sorry for her loss. But one of the things that I felt when she spoke is that, that that's another example of the entire system not having good alternatives for people. I mean, what alternative does she have except to hold on to her grievance forever? You know, I mean... We can't seem to think of ways as a society or as a system to say, hey, wait, there's other ways we can do grace and forgiveness and mercy. There's other ways we can approach this, but that's not on offer. What's on offer is hold on to my grievance forever, never be able to see past it um, or just give up. And and that seems very anemic to me, very narrow. Yeah. And I I... I... I know that she would never, and I'm not asking and never expect her to get over like the. No, the, not get over it. But I, I, I mean, I've served my time. I served my time. I paid my debt to society. And right now, having a conviction on my back, I don't know what the purpose of it would be. You know, exactly. um, I didn't understand why, like, she wouldn't want me to come out and use my experience to try to help other people or to try to become an attorney and do better and do more. Um, I don't know why she wanted me to hold on to that, but I respect her position uh, and she had the right to feel the way she feel. I just um, I, I, I was I didn't think that she would. I I wasn't expecting her to be there. Uh, but. Um, you know, I, I want to do more. And the conviction right now is just more of a anvil holding me back. than it is. Yeah. You know. No, you know, I. I. Uh, you know, I, that's why I said I was sorry for her loss, because I, I, it's not that I, I don't think she would ever get over it. But I think that the system and our society should have pathways for people to reconcile. And, yeah. and that's what's missing. So I, I feel bad for, you know, all the victims, but the idea that we're going to pursue vengeance and vengeance and vengeance and cruelty just seems like such the such a narrow choice of options, you know. Um, anyway, I, I was super impressed with you all. And but you know, as I listen to you, Marshawn, I mean, I've known you for a while. I know you're one of the busiest people I know, and your your focus is so disciplined. Where do you find t- places to breathe? Where do you get time to relax? Um, you know what? It's um Probably on the weekends, uh, I try to make time for my wife, you know, to continue to spend time together. It's been a little challenging because of a school right now, because that's taking up like my evenings. Doing, like right even now, this semester, the spring semester starts tomorrow. Um, I'm now going to school four days a week. Last semester was on three days a week. So it takes in another evening from me. And then even on the weekend, having to like do more work. I'm taking three classes this semester instead of two classes. Uh, you know, having to use the time on the weekend to try to read and study and catch up on my work because during the week, I don't have that time at all. Um, but I love fishing. I love fishing. I love music. I have a DJ 
set up here in my office that I was sometimes to come and just play for an hour and, you know, just to soothe my mind. Um, I have puppies that um, I love playing with and they love me playing with them that I, you know, roll around on the floor with them and run around with them a little bit, um, playing tug of war or whatever. But um, I, I try to find time as much as I can. And even like even doing my work, like the, the idea of helping people, being able to help people, I really enjoy that. Mm. You know, and and sometimes it doesn't feel like work. It feel like this is what I I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. But I try to find time to go to the movies. Tammy and I consider ourselves foodies, so we go to restaurants and try to experience different things. And I just came back from Florida visiting my in-laws and got a chance to get away from the cold. Um, so we we it's a few ways I try to vent and get you know uh, get some peace of mind. I think you're very lucky to found Tammy, and I think she's lucky to found you and. Y'all really are a, a wonder. And I think, you know, speaking to you as an older dude who's 53 years with my partner, even though you don't have a lot of time, to, to have that focus time with each other matters. And uh, you got to kind of carve that in, you know. Yeah. Um, let me ask you one last question. Um, I, I can't wait to see what's next. But, you know, my little podcast focuses on the question of freedom. That's a complex, multifaceted, philosophical, historical term. But maybe just reflect for a minute on what is freedom to you, given all your experiences. Um, yeah, so of course it means being free of those those actual physical barriers, you know, the handcuffs and the, the bars and the, the cages and the guard towers and the probation and the parole and the supervision, all those things too. But to me, it's just me being free to be able to reach my fullest potential. Right. To do what, you know, to, to be able to give my all and do what I, I feel like I'm placed here to do. You know, I feel like my incarceration, I was there for a reason. And I told my, I'm like, I, something, I'm not here to die. I'm here to learn something. And I need to learn it. And it led me here. It led me to becoming a paralegal, led me to be going to law school. And I believe that this is my my destiny. I believe that this is what. And so I think that that's what freedom is about, being able to do that and to reach my fullest potential and not being held back by anyone or anything. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate your time this morning. And um, I, I look forward so um, eagerly and hopefully to what's next. What's the next chapter for you and for Tammy? Uh, but I just want to thank you so much and send you nothing but love and hope hope that the term starting tomorrow is, is good for you. All right. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And it's a pleasure being here. Thank you again for having me on. You be well. Talk to you soon. I've been thinking a lot these days about the term political prisoner. It's a tricky term. It could mean a person locked in a dungeon because of open opposition to an authoritarian regime like medieval Saudi Arabia. Or it could mean someone who fought for justice in an unjust system and went to jail for violating a law that propped up that system. Perhaps the prisoner is a political dissident framed for a crime they didn't commit or perhaps serving an extremely harsh sentence precisely because the powers that be perceive them as an enemy of the state. A political prisoner could be a person thrown into a cell for refusing to cooperate with the state's investigation 
or persecution of their community, or an incarcerated person coming to political activism and finding a voice in opposition to the system while behind bars. A tricky term. I'm thinking that an accurate definition of political prisoners here and now must take into account the social historical conditions that have brought us to this place. Centuries of slavery, of course, and its lingering afterlife, including terrorism and a regime of lynching that included collective rituals of human sacrifice, black codes, and the jumble of misdemeanor laws that ensnare people in the criminal legal system. The relentless threat of violence from a dominant group, the systematic denial of land and housing to the threatened group, and the entrapment of an entire population into overcrowded, segregated areas easily overseen, regulated, and controlled. The withholding of access to the educational and cultural resources available to the privileged. The refusal to allow full participation in the nation's political life or its wealth. All of these structures and systems of control and exploitation are backed up by relentless propagandizing geared to shun, mock, and dishonor at every turn. Mass incarceration, then, is a defining characteristic, a feature, not a bug, of our time. And we need a particularly capacious interpretation of political prisoner. Maybe we can consider the possibility that people caught up in the crushing gears of racial capitalism, striking back against society's egregious crimes against humanity, are also political prisoners. Think about it. As in this country 160 years ago, abolition is on offer. And for me, at least, abolition is the answer. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the Generative and Provocative Podcast Ergo. To our co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an abolitionist dream. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. <laughs>